We're not robots. We don't sit on the couch and go, God, if it's your will, then you create opportunity. No, no, no. We step out and we do everything in the name of the Lord. So may he make your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know. This David knows. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord of our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. So much juice, so much encouragement in one small little chapter. And if God reigns, nothing else can. And if God reigns, may he remember all your sacrifices. And if God reigns in your life, may he cause all your plans to succeed. And if God reigns in your life, may he he bring comfort for you in times of distress. May he be a refuge to you in times of trouble. This is the hope that we have. So good. So Father, in this moment, I want to pray for every single person that's here. That they would experience afresh the freedom that comes with you reigning in their life. The peace that surpasses all understanding that comes when you reign in their life. The protection or the favor, the blessing the kindness, the compassion, the love, the mercy that flow from heaven's direction into our world when we bow our knee and declare you Lord. That you are a good father. And even though we might not be good children at times, you're still a good father. And we can expect good things from you. So Lord, would you bless every single person here today, no matter where they're at with life or faith, no matter their struggle, their wrestle, their fear, their doubt, Lord, would you pierce through all of that with your kindness, with your love and your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, why don't you COVID safe high five someone close to you, tell them they're awesome, then sanitize appropriately afterwards and So good. <sighs> I've got to say, Nath, wearing that um, World Gym t-shirt's incredibly intimidating. <laughs> not going to lie. Because the guy on the shirt looks like you. Just, yeah. It's, it is a portrait. It's amazing. not even angry. Hey, thanks, worship crew. You guys are amazing. Yeah, we th- let's, let's thank them. Yeah. So as I said before, they have been rehearsing for um, about a month now, every week, uh, getting ready for our big Christmas party in a couple of weeks. So um, you're not going to miss it. We love Christmas. We love doing Christmas services. So hope you're well. Hope you're good. You look good. 
And that's, that's the main thing, right? Appearances. Fantastic. Um, if you've got a Bible, over me to Colossians. We're going to finish up our series. With, this, is, this is week seven. So for the last six weeks, we've been um, unpacking the book of Colossians like a Bible study. And I want to thank um, my wife and Steve Farrell and David Hooper who have helped me unpack this book and done such a brilliant job in doing that. Um, none of which are here today. So... Um, they preach and then, bye Felicia, they're out. So whatever, I'm left here to bring it home. Who's here? Oh, he's hiding behind Danny and he's got such an awe. Thank you, thank you, David, for your faithfulness in being here. Uh, may the Lord shine upon you and may my repentant heart be born before all of you to see my sins absolved. Sorry. And the moustache is hiding behind the mask. There it is. Glory to God. So we, we, for six weeks, as I said, have been going through this. And this is my favorite type of, of preaching because it forces us to, to get on the road of studying through Scripture and we can't just divert ourselves or detour around tricky topics or tri- tricky things that the Bible talk about. Um, it's easy to just choose themes and go, I'm just going to choose my favorite parts of the Bible that make me look good or sound good and give everybody this beautiful, nice message. But sometimes um, when we preach through books of the Bible like this, we, we come to these forks in the road or these little bumps in the road of tricky topics to talk on or, or difficult teachings to understand. But I think it's healthy for us to, to do the hard work of getting through those things and coming out the other side stronger and healthier for it, rather than just avoiding those things. It's like you can live a healthy life and avoid the gym and avoid eating, eating healthy, but when you actually go to the gym and do that workout, when you stick to that meal plan, when you do those things, you will actually get healthy, not just have an appearance of health by dodging the things that actually cause health in your life. And so I think last week was a good example of that. Um, who preached a brilliant message on, um, I think the whole thing was basically wives submit to your husbands. That's the gist I got out of it. Um, uh, which, again, is one of those tricky... He didn't. I'm just joking, by the way. Uh, listen online. It was amazing. Um, but that's a tricky topic that, as he said, is one of those scriptures that has been misused for a very long time in, in a way that sort of suppresses women and, and keeps them down without um, when they should be released to their full potential that God has called them to, to live in. Um, and so that was awesome. So going through, let's just do a quick little recap, then I'll jump into today's message, uh, and hopefully you find it really, really helpful and you have a light bulb moment. But we looked at, um, at the very start, this book um, is not a fairy tale, it's an actual historical document that was written in 62 or 63 AD, and so it's, it's a couple of thousand years old, uh, this particular letter, and it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who's written most of the New Testament. It's a letter to the church in a city called Colossae, uh, that's the title Colossians, it's to the church to uh, address them collectively. Uh, what was happening in the time was a lot of uh, false teaching was getting into the church. Uh, they were saved by the pure message of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, but they had allowed other things to creep in. Old habits, old behaviors, old traditions had crept into the church and sort of diluted the purity that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so Paul essentially is just correcting some of those things and massaging out those false teachings so they come back to the, the, the center line of truth, which is Jesus. And so we looked at um, a prayer in chapter 1 that Paul prays for the church. 
And then we also looked at like the fact that even though 2,000 years later when we're much more technologically advanced, you know, we're sitting in, in a tabernacle that is air-conditioned and uh, has electricity and, and a live band and all sorts of stuff like that, far different to the church um, in 62 AD uh, that were, these guys were facing. And yet, the problems we face are pretty similar, indicating that no matter how much we advance and progress technologically, the, the human condition is essentially the same in whatever generation you live in. And so Paul then prays for that. And then we looked at the preeminence of Christ, which essentially means Jesus surpasses everything else. So if Jesus surpasses everything else in, for example, our finances, how do we manage our money? If Jesus surpasses everyone else, everything else in our relationships, how do we treat other people? Like the preeminence of Christ, Christ being... Uh, Everything, and, and like we said before, the Lord who reigns over all, uh, that should dramatically shift every area of our life, if indeed he is Lord. Um, and we know he's Lord because we would surrender to him. I was thinking, um, this week we, in our Intentional Father course, um, looked at the idea of doing like a, a personality test with our family, with our kids, just for the simple fact that um, it helps you understand who they are, how they're wired, how they think, what they value, what they're good at, different things like that. They can understand themselves, you can understand them, and you can best work together with their, their strengths and weaknesses. And it got me thinking, like I've seen a lot of these things, and they're really good. These personality tests are great. There's a bunch of them out there. There's DISC and Myers-Briggs and um, Enneagram and a bunch of things out there. They're all pretty good. There's a lot of uh, psychology and research that goes into them, so I, I kind of feel like they're pretty accurate um, by the most part. But one, one issue I have with them is, is when people take them a little too seriously, um, where they're brilliant at, at they're, they're a really good indicator Right? But they're not, they're not the definition of you. They're an indicator of certain things of how you're wired. And so I've seen people in the past, multiple people who have done one of these results and the results have come back and it's like, uh, you are stubborn, you are pig-headed and you are tenacious. And so they go, so then when you're in a meeting or when you talk to them and they're rude, well, that's who I am. I've done this test. I'm pig-headed, I'm opinionated. It's like, well, hold on a minute. This is, this is a personality test. It's not a license to be a jerk. And they treat it like that. It's like they go, okay, cool. Well, I've found the definition and the reason why I can behave this way because I've done this personality test and it's made me realize who I am. No, no, no. It's indicated some areas in your life of how you operate. But that's the starting point. Now, Jesus, if he's preeminent, we take that and we go, okay, how does that measure against a preeminent standard of how we live our life? So if I am a, a bull, bull-headed person and I'm arrogant and prideful and all these sort of things, what does Jesus say about that? Well, he tells me to be meek. He tells me to be humble. He tells me to be kind, compassionate, think of others before myself, lay down my agenda, pick up his agenda. So all of a sudden... If Jesus really is preeminent, then what a personality test says about me no longer defines me because he defines me. It just gives me areas of my life I need to work on according to Jesus' standard. So that's putting it in its rightful place. Does that, that make sense? It does to me, so hopefully it does to you. Um, then we looked at um, suffering and, and how suffering with purpose actually alleviates suffering. And, and that was a, an awesome week to look at that as well. Uh, and then Steve Farrell talked about Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Again, that theme about Jesus and preeminence comes through again. 
Uh, and then my lovely wife talked about um, putting on the new self, taking on the, the old jacket or the old cloak of um, bitterness or pride or um, whatever it is and putting on the new self uh, of love and compassion that God would have for us. And then last week, as I, as I mentioned, um, David Hooper talked about wives submitting to your husbands and unpacked that for 40 minutes, which was fantastic. So um, I love that. And wives, hopefully you have submitted to your husbands this week and are doing what the Bible says. If you weren't here, that's not what he said at all. I love the fact that he said to all of us, read your own mail. Read the parts of the Bible that are addressed to you. So me reading wives submit to your husbands is not for me as a husband to read and apply. But husbands love your wives like Christ did, uh, loves the church and lays his life down for her. That's to me. So my role becomes to love my wife and lay my life down for her just like Jesus did for the church. And so keeping things in the rightful place was so practical and so helpful for all of us and uh, a great tip for marriages and relationships. So today, I feel like I've already preached and you're probably already exhausted, but um, the show must go on and we'll finish up very soon. Chapter 4 of Colossians, we're going to bring it home. This is a little bit different, but uh, it'll be good. We're starting verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So Paul's giving some further instructions after everything he's just talked about in the previous three chapters. He's now bringing it to a close saying, hey guys, um, continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer can be, honestly, prayer's the first thing to go when we get tired. Prayer's the first thing to go when we start to feel distant from God. Um, And that's why I think it's so important that, that Paul encourages us all to continue steadfastly in prayer prayer why because prayer is connectivity to god prayer is the wi-fi system that links the device of us as a person to god in heaven and it's that connecting thing so we must remain steadfast in prayer and he says do it with um thanksgiving so thankfulness and gratitude is uh eugene peterson will say is the password to enter god's kingdom enter god's gates into god's courts it's it's like the knock on the door is thanksgiving and that gets god's attention god i'm thankful for this life i'm thankful for my family i'm thankful and that spirit of thankfulness gets god's attention to then open up his presence for us to enter into it i'm a dad i don't enjoy it when my kids just winch to me all the time dad they're picking on me dad do this dad i need this dad and that's like there comes a point where i just zone out but dad i love you Dad, I, I'm so thankful for this house we live in. I'm so thankful that you cook us dinner every night. I'm so, that gets my attention. That makes me lean in. That draws me close to relationship with my kids. And I kind of feel like there's, there's a similar parallel there to God. And we're told all the time through Scripture is to come with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, so find things that we can be thankful for rather than things we can just complain about. Now, God will hear our complaints and our laments. You read through the Psalms and there's a bunch of lamenting. You read Job, there's a bunch of lamenting there. And there are times for us to cry and weep and do all those sorts of things. But there's always a time for thankfulness. There's always a time for gratitude. And gratitude is the password that will get us into God's presence. Verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which for I'm in prison. So he's in prison. We already established that. 
He's in Rome, in prison, writing this letter. As a part of his missionary journey, going around preaching the gospel, planting churches, seeing people saved and, and won into the kingdom, he's saying, hey, pray for me. Pray for us that we continue to have opportunity, that doors of opportunity would open for us to preach the gospel, for people to receive the truth of Jesus Christ. And so for us, what does that mean 2,000 years later? Well, are we praying for those that preach the gospel? Are we praying for the advancement of the kingdom or do we simply pray to God for the needs of what we want in our world? Or do we have a bigger picture view of prayer to pray for those who are out in the mission field, those in the local churches, those who are out doing the work of the ministry? Do we pray that God would continue to make opportunity for them? I think that's a good um, challenge for all of us. Um, Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. How aware are we of the separation that we create between us and people that don't think like we think, believe what we believe, speak like we speak, do what we do? I think as a church, um, not us, but collectively as the, the church, Big C, this is probably an issue we've maybe got wrong over the years where we've created an arm's length between us, the believer, and them, the unbeliever. And, and we try to bridge that gap by you know, just putting on an event and throwing the gospel out there or we, um, you know, street preachers, God love them because I don't. But their intention seems good, but how effective is it to stand on a street corner and just condemn people of their sin? Here's what I'm thinking. What's, What's more effective? A local church like us who come here on a Sunday to be with Jesus and then to get out of here to be like Jesus. And so a hundred of us on a Sunday, get encouraged in our faith, get with God, we're with Jesus, and then we make a decision to be like Jesus. And then we go to a hundred different workplaces, a hundred different schools, a hundred different households, a hundred different neighborhoods, and we live like Jesus there in relationship, connecting with people, understanding their needs, understanding their world. And through the fact that we have been with Jesus and we're actively being like Jesus, people start to see Jesus in us and through us. Is that more effective than one person saying Jesus to a hundred random passers-by? I kind of am putting my hat in the ring for the former, not the latter. I want to see a church rise up that knows who it is in Christ and that goes about its everyday world, no matter what you do, after having been with Jesus, be like Jesus, and then people will see Jesus on you and you have opportunity because relationship opens the door to people's hearts. And you understand the issues so that you can uh, walk wisely with individual peoples, not just scattergun approach the gospel out there and just hope for the best. God is calling us to make relationship with people, to stop putting up walls between us and people that don't think like we think, believe like we believe, and do what we do. We're called to bridge that gap. It's called love. He says it here. Um, Let your speech be uh, be gracious, seasoned with salt, so we're kind, we're like Jesus, right? And so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Because each person in this world has their own set of issues, 
circumstances and things like that, challenges, doubts, fears. And if we don't get in their world to understand those things, to be able to bring the, the correct angle that God would have us bring for that person, then they're, they're, our effectiveness in helping them receive Christ might be quite low. But relationship opens the door to people so we can preach the gospel to them and help them. Is that okay? Good. A hundred people out in the world rather than one people. It's good. Final greetings. Here we go. This is where I love this particular passage and I'm going to bring it home on this. It may take me a while, but we'll get there. Verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage you, he may encourage you in your hearts. And with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Okay. You might go, what is this? So Tychicus, so remember this, this is a letter that Paul wrote from Rome. Now, contrary to popular belief, Rome in 62 AD did not have email. So he couldn't just type this up on his Mac and then just shoot it through down to Colossae. They had to travel by foot, by horseback, by boat, and it would take weeks to get this letter to its destination. And so if you could throw the first one on the screen for me, Shady, here is a map of the ancient time um, that this was written, right? So this is what was happening in the world. So up in the top left corner, you see Rome. That's where Paul was. He traveled all around a bunch of times, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and at this time, he found himself imprisoned in Rome. The island of Malta in the bottom there, you would have heard a few weeks ago how he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta for a bunch of three months. That's where he was after the, the, the two weeks of storm. Got there, transferred up to Rome, that's where he was. So Colossae, the church that he's writing to, is down there in the bottom right. To get to there, you have to get, to, to get through a place called Ephesus, which was a major trading hub. Uh, it's a harbour where all the boats would come in and then there would be distribution routes out into all the inland um, cities and places and things like that. You also see Corinth, Thessalonica and Philippi, all other books of the Bible that you would recognise as well. So what we're reading here in these verses 7 through to 10 is that Tychicus was Paul's right-hand man, Paul's assistant, Paul's email system, if you like, who is his job to physically take the letter all the way down to Rome, jump on a boat, come through to Ephesus, and then continue down to Colossae to hand the letter to them. Big journey, right? Big effort. That's why Paul put so much effort into writing these things so concisely and correctly, because if you're going to put that much effort into getting a letter to somebody, you better make sure it's good and helpful. So, Tychicus goes, and then it says here in verse 9, and with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. One of who? One of the church in Colossae, who the letter's addressed to. Okay, so is that all making sense so far? Because I'm going to get real deep and real history in a moment, but it'll be good. So, because it's such a long trip, um, Paul says to Tychicus, look, if you're going to go that way, um, can I give you a couple of other letters to take with you so you're not just doing this journey just for one letter. So he wrote another letter to the church in Ephesus to drop off on the way to Colossae. This is the book of Ephesians that you would read in your Bible, a letter to the church in Ephesus. So he's got that. And then also the, the leader of the church in Colossae was a man by the name of Philemon. And yes, if you've read your Bible, you'll see there's a book uh, towards the back of the New Testament called Philemon, which is a direct letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, the leader of the church in Colossae. 
So there's three letters that Tychicus has from Rome to take all the way to Colossae. It's the Ephesians letter, it's the Colossians letter, and it's the personal letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, the leader at Colossae. All up to speed with that. Great. So who is Philemon? Well, Philemon is a businessman, a rich dude who does a lot of work in Ephesus, which is the trading hub. So one day, Philemon is in Ephesus doing business, getting ready um, to then do whatever transaction he needs to do, then come back to Colossae to his hometown to continue the business there. On one of Paul's missionary journeys, Paul happened to be in Ephesus at the time Philemon was there. Paul met Philemon, they had a chat, maybe they had a beer, I don't even know. But whatever happened, Paul led Philemon to faith, to trust in Jesus, and said, listen, take this back to to your hometown, to Colossae, plant a church there, and and God's going to do amazing things. So he did. So Philemon came back from, from Ephesus, went to Colossae, started a church in his own home. It was a home church. And so uh, he did that, which was amazing and incredible and was going really, really well. And then Paul obviously caught wind that things weren't going too well there. The false teaching had come into play. Uh, Word had got back to him. So that's why he wrote the letter to the church. Hey, guys, deal with your crap. Okay, so then this guy, Onesimus, that Paul is writing here, says Onesimus is with Tychicus on this journey to come back to you. Who was one of you? So who is he? Onesimus was a slave of Philemon in Philemon's household. So he's a part of the church in Colossae. Part of the, 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 the business would work directly for um, Philemon. Now, he was, we don't know much about him, but he's a bit of a sketchy dude, a bit of a prodigal son type situation where rather than demanding an inheritance, which the prodigal son was entitled to, um, uh, Onesimus just took what was not entitled to him and stole and then fled. So he tried to get as far away as possible because if you are a bondservant and you get caught stealing from your master, guess what happened? Off with your head. You're gone. And so he knew that he had to just hightail it and get out of there as quick as he could so that he didn't get caught and get in trouble. So he goes back through Ephesus, jumps on a boat, and he goes to Rome to go, I'll just get away. I'll get to Rome, a massive city, the biggest city in the world at the time, and I'll just hide in there until this whole thing blows over and I'll be fine. So Onesimus, thinking he's hiding out in a major city, hiding from his sin, hiding from his rebellion, meets Paul. I don't know how, but he meets Paul. Paul brings him in, leads him to faith in Christ, just like he did to Philemon. His life is dramatically turned upside down. He he explains to Paul um, what had happened and, and how he got to Rome and all that sort of stuff. And then Paul's like, you know what? The full redemptive power of Christ means that we need to address the past in order to move into the future. You've got to deal with some of the stuff in in the background in order to move fully into the fullness of what you have. So I'm going to send you back to Colossae. And he's probably like, oh, heck no, time out. I'm not doing that. They're going to kill me. You don't understand. And Paul's like, no, no, just chill. I'll write a letter to Philemon directly, right? Not to the church, but to him directly, personally, vouching for you and and asking to bring you back into the household. So that's exactly what happens. Paul writes three letters, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And when you read the book of Philemon, it is a direct plea from Paul to Philemon to reinstate this slave that stole from him and fled to Rome called Onesimus. And if you read this letter of Philemon, it is beautiful. It just, Paul just says, look, I want you to take him back. He, he, he's repentant. He's forgiven. I've introduced him to the Lord. He, he's, he's a changed man. In fact, anything he's stolen from you, ever, Consider me 
um, guarantor for all those things. I will pay back every single thing he's stolen from your estate. That's how much I value Onesimus and want him back in your household. In fact, I'm going to push it even further, man. I know a relationship's pretty, pretty good, whatever, but, but I, I want you to take him back, not no longer as a slave, but as a, as a brother. I don't want him to come back on the payroll as an employee. I want him back at the church in Colossae as a family member. That's huge. From a guy that deserved the death penalty to now be welcomed back into the family, not just as a slave, what he was, but higher as a brother. You might be thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. Flip to the next slide for me, Shady. This is the point of this logo. Was in Colossae, goes to Rome, was in Rome, goes back to Colossae. There's this cycle. And the parallel between this story, and this is what I love about Colossians, because all we've read is about Jesus. They've distracted and been distorted away from the purity of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, and Jesus being preeminent, and they've added other things to it. But Jesus is enough. And when Jesus reigns, everything falls into place according to his standard and his timing, not necessarily ours. So it's all about Jesus. So this story, if I was to flip the characters around a little bit, and I don't think it's much of a stretch to do this, we see Philemon as like a type and shadow of God. Successful, in control, has a lot of people working for him. We see Onesimus is like us, people, connected with God, in with God, tight with God, and then we move away. We rebel, we steal, we take. We think we can do it in our own strength and we disconnect from God and we flee from him. And then Paul is, I guess, a type and a shadow of Jesus who finds us in our waywardness, finds us on our path of distraction and rebellion. And he welcomes us in with love, with grace, with mercy, and with truth. And so we might think that we have escaped God, fled from Him. We don't need Him. We're okay. We're, we're out of harm's reach. We might feel like we have got to Rome and we're just one in a million people. It's not, not significant. It doesn't really matter. But Jesus will find a way to leave the 99 to find the one. And the purpose is that he would reconnect the one back to the Father. And so we see this in the history of humankind, that we were created in the image of God, Adam and Eve. With beautiful connection and harmony, and Adam and God would walk in the, the cool of the evening together and name the animals and have this beautiful relationship. And what happened? Adam and Eve rebelled. They fled from the presence of God to hide their nakedness and their shame. And then throughout history, thousands of years, we keep doing the same thing, hiding from God, making mistakes, being the rebel. And so there was a bunch of rules and regulations that we'd have to jump through religiously where animals would get slaughtered to atone for the sin, as the, the, the atonement, if you like. And then there came a point but God's like, no, no, enough is enough. I'm going to finish this once and for all. I'm going to send my only son. 
For God so loved the world. Even though they were rebellious, he would send his only son into the world so that anyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus is a type and shadow of Paul in that like Paul took Onesimus in, absorbed his guilt and shame, paid the price for everything he stole and took, paid the price for his penalty that he deserved. Not only that, sent him back to reconnect with Philemon, no longer as a slave, but as a brother. And so Jesus takes us in like that and on the cross paid the price for all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our rebellion in order that we might be reconnected with our Heavenly Father once more, no longer as just mere creation, but as sons and daughters of the living God, no longer employees on this earth, but family members in the citizenship of heaven. And for me, this, this story, I just, I just love this. I love the parallel that we see here because it just reminds me of the goodness of God. It reminds me of the, the power of Jesus. It reminds me of the, the story of the prodigal son. Wanders off, comes back in, and the father accepts him and loves him. And we can be like the big brother sometimes at point of thinking, that's not fair, that's not right, I've done the right thing, why do they get to... God's grace can't be defined. God's grace can't be put into a box. God's grace is it's his manifestation of, of his presence and his power in this world. God's grace is a manifestation of his truth. So as we come to a close, as we finish this series, I want us to think about that. That it's all about Jesus. It's all about Him being the highest standard in our life. It's about His nature and His work being what we measure ourselves against. Not the standard of this world, not the standard of our preferences, but the standard of His, of his immense love and grace that He paid the penalty in full for our separation to God.